Let's start with thoughts from last week. We are building this class on an essential truth to understand. Ezra Taft Benson declared this years ago. Truth was restored in the order of importance. That is vital when you really say, well, what is the restoration? And sometimes we get caught up in things that are way down here. And we haven't built a foundation about things up here. The invitation this class is extending is to make sure you have a foundation of the first things first. When do temples come along? When do three degrees of glory come along? Truth was restored in the order of its importance. And so we need to make sure that we lay the foundation. We are part of a restoration, but to really be part of it, we have to have the foundation laid. And so what was the very first thing restored in this restoration? Nature and identity of God. The essence of the restoration is we know who Heavenly Father is. And that becomes, I would invite you to make that become a life quest. Understand his character, his nature, his attributes. Where did he come from? It is the greatest truth we offer the world. We can offer the world ordinances. We can offer the world gift of the Holy Ghost. We can offer them temple and additional scripture. But the greatest truth that we offer the world is knowledge of who God is. Therefore, I would suggest that the most important thing you need to establish in your life is a relationship with Him and an understanding of who He is. If you're going to obsess about anything in the restoration, obsess about that. I want to know Him. I want to know Him doctrinally. I want to know Him personally. I want to connect with Him. That is the restoration, is that I have a connection with Him. What was the very first thing restored? An invitation to do what? Hear Him. Connect with Him. Know Him. Who is God? All right, thoughts from last week. As you've thought about that and put that in place in the restoration, what difference does it make when you start with, we need to know who He is and have a relationship with Him? A lot of people are, are leaving the church for things that are way down here. What happens when you establish that? What happens if the restoration is, I know who he is and I have a connection to him? You see the difference? That's how we, have to be, that's how we need to begin. Yeah, I was just saying, when we understand how much he loves us, that he doesn't do anything to say it would be for our benefit, like we said in the Book of Mormon, and that kind of frames everything that happens in the church, and so people struggle with that, but really, yeah. we trust that he knows better than we do. Then. Yep. Okay, so what came next? That was spring of 1820. First vision, the knowledge of God. It ended, Joseph, I mean, he's 14, he doesn't do anything for three years. Until Moroni comes and reveals the gold plates. So what is the next piece of the restoration? What was restored next? Now, the Book of Mormon forms a symbol here. So let me see if I can show you the symbol. Normally, I would love, if, we, if this were a longer class, I would spend an entire hour just on what we're about to do in two minutes. Um, Lehi has a marvelous dream of the tree of life. And if I were to summarize the dream, there is a tree that is a source of happiness. It is the love of God. Nothing in all of the universe will bring you greater joy than the love of God. But in Lehi's dream, there's an imitation. There's a fake tree. There's an imitation happiness that's going to fool you into thinking something else will make you happy. What's the imitation in Lehi's dream? The building. Anyone who is fooled by an imitation will walk away from the tree and go to the building. Now, no one ever gets to the building because where do they end up? 
If you are fooled by an imitation, you don't end up in the building. I don't know where the people in the building came from because anyone fooled by them ends up in drowning in the river. If you are fooled by an imitation happiness, you will end up drowning in a river. But the Lord says, let me help you. So what does he hand us? A rod. Now the problem with all of this is we're doing it blind, right? We're blinded by a mist who doesn't allow us to see the love of God and doesn't allow us to see the base of the building to let us know how dangerous it is, hides the river and hides the rod. It hides the rod. The mist hides the rod, but how do we get through the rod? We got to grab the rod. The rod will get me through the mist, but the mist is going to hide the rod. Now, that was Lehi's version, right? Chapter eight, Nephi comes along and says, I want to know more. Could you tell me more? And the Lord doesn't come down and show him a tree and a building and a river and a rod and a mist of darkness. What does Nephi get? Nephi gets three historical stories. Stories that we all should know. And the whole idea is, can you find in the story the tree? I'm going to tell you a story, Nephi. Can you find the tree? Can you find the manifestation of God's love in this story? There's the tree. Can you find the building? Can you find what fooled them and they thought was a better happiness than the tree? Can you find the building? Can you find the river? Can you find the rod that led them to the tree? Can you see what the mist was? Brilliant teaching, right? Let me tell you a story. See if you can find all five of those elements. So tell me what is story number one. Story number one is 1 Nephi chapter 11. It is the story of the New Testament. He tells Nephi the story of the New Testament. Mary, Jesus, the miracles, the crucifixion. And the angel basically says, do you see the tree? Did he? Did Nephi see? Yeah. What, what was the tree? What was the manifestation of God's love in the New Testament? Christ. The birth of Christ. And as soon as he sees the birth of Christ, Nephi says, I see the tree. Well, what's the building? Now, we won't do this. This is where we have to skip. But what was the building in the New Testament? What did the Jews mistake for a real happiness? They rejected Christ. What, were they think? what did they think? I'll leave that as your homework. He sees the rod. He sees John leading people to Christ. He sees the 12 apostles leading people to Christ. He sees the miracles that led people to Christ. And yet they crucified him. They crucified the Son of God because the mist blinded them and they couldn't see who he was. So what might you call New Testament blindness? What was New Testament blindness? Okay, but in what form? That's, that's almost always the right answer. But what was, the, what was it that caused them to crucify him instead of honor him? New Testament stuff, uh, one, they're focused on, like, the law of Moses and everything like that, like, but they also expected, like, a great leader to show up, like, a military. They are servant. What haven't they had for 600 years? A king, a kingdom, and an independent state. And what do they want? They want a king. They want a military leader that will conquer Rome and make them free again. In other words, what's New Testament blindness? New Testament blindness is when Jesus turns out to be not the Messiah you're looking for. And I know people who are New Testament blind today. What are you going to do if he doesn't do what you think a Messiah should do? A lot of people walk away from him today because he doesn't do what they think he should do. Some of us expect comfortable lives. And guess what? Is that something he wants to give you? Not necessarily. 
And when it turns out that he's not the Messiah I wanted, what do some people do? They're blind and hardened. We're going to see that in the restoration because if this is the church of Jesus, if this is his church, what do people expect it to be? And what happens when it's not? What happens when it's not perfect? What goes on? Blinders. And it hardens the heart because they don't, this isn't the church of Jesus. So New Testament blindness is what are you going to do when he turns out to be a different Messiah than the one you expected? Now that's a great lesson. Love that lesson, but let's move on. Nephi gets another story. Story number two is... 1 Nephi 12. So this is 1 Nephi 11. This is 1 Nephi 12. What's the next story Nephi gets? He gets the Book of Mormon story. He gets to, he's told about the Book of Mormon. Nephi's Lamanites. He knows that in the end, the Lamanites kill the Nephites, right? Does Nephi know that in the end, his people are going to be killed by his brother's people? So clearly there's a building in that story, isn't there? There's a mist and a building in that story. But there's also a tree. What is the tree in the story of the Book of Mormon? Not the birth of Christ, but the coming of Christ to say to them that you're not forgotten. And so how does 1 Nephi chapter 12 begin? Jesus' visit to the Americas. Feel the nail marks in my hands. But do you see a building? Do you see a mist? Now, again, we don't have time to, we don't have the time to break this down, but what? Let's do Lamanites and Nephites separately. What blinded the Lamanites so that they couldn't see that the truth was with the Nephites? What blinded the Lamanites? Yeah. Isn't it interesting how many times in the Book of Mormon it says in, in order for a Lamanite to join the church, he has to come to a knowledge of the foolishness of the traditions of his fathers. He has to lay down Lamanite hatred. They hated the Nephites and that hatred blinded them. And until they let that hatred go, not one of them would ever join the church that the Nephites were members of, right? Do you see the blinder? Is hatred and anger a blinder today? Absolutely. Okay, what blinded the Nephites? Every time the Nephites go astray, what blinds them? They're always saying what? When, they're, when they go astray, they're always saying, we don't need him. We don't need him. Our cities are strong and powerful. Why do they reject Nephi? Remember that when he's praying in the garden and he predicts that the chief judge has been killed? What do they say? Our cities are strong. They're always, when does Mormon say, I will not be your captain anymore? When they boast of their own strength. As soon as you say you don't need God, you are Nephi blind. Are there people today that are Nephi blind and say they don't need God? Yes. Do you, see the, do you see the relevance of these stories? Okay, but let's get to the next one. Turn to 1 Nephi chapter 13. Let's get to story number three. You look for the building. You look for the tree, the building, the rod, the mist, the river. Now, let's be clear. I think if we were in Russia or Japan, we could adapt this to our lives. But to me... It seems pretty clear who this story is. And I don't mean to diminish anyone who doesn't live in North America. But it's pretty, it seems pretty clear to me whose story is story number three. So he sees in verse 12, a man separated from the seed of his brethren by the many waters. The spirit comes down, rots upon the man. He crosses the waters to where his, the seed of his brethren are. Pretty clear who that is. That's Christopher Columbus coming to America. Verse 17, he sees the mother Gentiles gathered on the water to battle against them. 
Tell me what that is. That's the Revolutionary War. He sees that the Lord was with the colonists and that they, they won the victory. If the American Revolution is fought 10 times, how many times do we, do we lose? Nine times we lose. But God was with us and so we won it. And Nephi saw that. So who is story number three? It is us. We are story number three. It is the day in which you and I live and this country in which we live. Now, let's see if you can see the building and the rod and then the tree in our day. Let's pick it up in verse 20. First Nephi chapter 13, verse 20. Once we've established that it's the Americas, verse 20. Nephi sees a book in their hands. He sees a book in the hands of the colonists. And the angel says, look, do you know what that book is? Nephi says, I don't know. So verse 23, he describes it. Now, in my thinking, there's only one possibility that that book could be, right? What is the book? The Bible. A record of the Jews, which contains the covenants, but it's smaller than what Nephi had in the plates of brass. Now, here's the painful thing. Verse 24, when the Bible was first written by the Jews, it proceeded out of the mouth of the Jew. What's the description in verse 24 of the original Bible? It contained a fullness of the gospel. Verse 25, what word is used to describe the original Bible? Pure. Jump to chapter 14 where Nephi sees John the Beloved. He sees one of the 12 apostles. Look at verse 20. The angel said unto me, Behold, one of the 12 apostles. He's going to see and write the remainder of these things. Which one is it? Look at verse 27. Who did Nephi see? John, who wrote? Revelation. So Revelation is the second half of Nephi's vision. Nephi was not allowed to write it. And he says he's going to write it in that book. Look at verse 23. The Lord describes to Nephi the book in which John's going to write the rest of this, the book of Revelation, the Bible. And give me at the very end of verse 23, what, five, what four words are used to describe the original Bible when it was first written? Plain, precious, pure, precious, and easy. The book of Revelation when it was first written was easy to the understanding of men. So what happened? Go back to chapter 13. What happened? Verse 26, someone read. What happened to the Bible? Verse 26, anyone want to read for me? Amen. And after they go forth by the hand of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, from the Jews unto the Gentiles, thou seest the formation of that great and abominable church, which is most abominable above all other churches. For behold, they have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord that have they taken away. So during the apostasy, the Bible lost plain and precious truths. Now watch for our key words. Ready? Verse 27. What does the loss of plain and precious truths do? Give me the key words in 27. It blinds and, do you see it? What in Lehi's dream blinds and hardens? The mist. In other words, what is the mist of darkness in our day? The loss of plain and precious truths. The world in our day is blinded by what? Hardened by what? The loss of plain and precious truths. I'm going to say that about a hundred times until it just kind of sinks in. The biggest mist in our day, the day in which you live, wherever you go on your mission, you are knocking on the doors of people who are blind and hardened because why? Lost truth. And they hold to traditions. They hold to the traditions of lost truth. That's 
what hardens our hearts. That's what hardened, that's the, that's the mist in our day. Now, if you're Nephi, are you freaking out a little bit? What? You're kidding me, Lord. You're just going to let this happen? So the Lord says, no, 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 I got a plan. What was the Lord's plan? Verse 32, he says, Neither will the Lord suffer that the Gentiles shall forever remain in that awful state of blindness. Because what was his plan? Verse 35, tell me what was the Lord's plan to overcome the lost truths. What was the Lord's plan? I'm going to speak to the Nephites. I'm going to speak to your seed, Nephi, and they're going to write it. And what they write, look at verse 25. What will the Nephites write? What will the Nephites write? Plain and precious truths. And so the Lord does that, and Nephi sees the Nephite record coming back. Let's read verse 40. What does the Book of Mormon do? Number one, verse 40. Give me all three of them. In verse 40, what does the Book of Mormon do? Establishes the truth of the Bible. And then number two, shall make known the plain and precious truths that have been taken out and of all the plain and precious truths. What's the most important plain and precious truth the Book of Mormon is going to restore? The knowledge of the Savior. All right, ready? This just gives me chills every single time. What is the tree in our day? If the birth of Christ was the tree in the New Testament, if the visit of Christ was the tree in the Book of Mormon, what is the tree? What is the greatest manifestation of God's love today? The restoration. What is the greatest sign that God loves us? The greatest sign that God loves us. He restored the truth. It is the greatest evidence that God intends to save us. He hasn't given up on us. He intends to save us. The restoration is the tree. Now, do you see the problem? What's the problem? Everyone is blind to it because of lost truth. And the irony is, if they took the blinders off, they would grab the rod to get through the, blind, the mist. But they're blind to the rod. You see why missionary work is such a challenge? So the dilemma of the Book of Mormon is that people are blind to the very thing that would get them through the darkness. So what's the solution? The world needs a temporary rod that they can hold on to in order to partake of the tree so that they can grab the real rod, which is the restoration. Who is that temporary rod the world needs? Right now, it's you. Who did Lamoni grab onto to partake of the tree that ended up taking the blinders off? Ammon. Who did Alma the Younger grab onto to partake of the tree that ended up taking the blinders off? His father. Who did Nephi grab onto? Enos. Stripling warriors. There's almost always someone who does what? Helps them. Loves them. Serves them earns their trust so that they partake of a tree that allows them to take the blinders off. Do you say why we need Book of Mormon and missionaries? If all we do is start printing millions of copies of the Book of Mormon and mail it to everyone, is this world going to be converted? Why not? They're blind to it. And the only way the blinders come off is if you 
are the temporary rod that allows them to partake of the tree so that they take their blinders off. Now, that's an invitation for you. But my point today is we are messed up over truth. The restoration. What is the second thing restored? If we're going to draw these as circles, the knowledge of God came first. Followed by what? All other truth. The second cornerstone, the second cornerstone of the foundation is the restoration of truth. But we have to make sure it's real truth. Because what are we all arguing over? What's blinded the world? Holding to lack of full truth. So the invitation today is that you come to know truth. What is true? We have a common phrase in our, t- our, 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 our day. People say, this is my truth. My truth. Okay, I'm going to play a little word. Allow me to play that out so I can make a point. My truth. I'm following my truth. Okay, let me play that out. Allow me just a moment to change something very interesting. Let's start in the New Testament. I want you to go to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 25. Where did Judas Iscariot go when he committed suicide after betraying Christ? According to Acts chapter 1, verse 25, where did Judas Iscariot go? His own place. Interesting phrase. His own place. Now, we're going to go backwards in time, but forward in Scripture. We're going to do the Old Testament version, but you're not going to find it in the Old Testament. It was one of the things stripped out of the Old Testament. It's been restored by the Book of Mormon, and you'll find it in the book of Jacob, the allegory of Zenos, an Old Testament prophet. Turn with me to the allegory of Zenos, but we're going to go to Jacob 5. We're really turning to the Old Testament, right? Do you understand that? We're going to Jacob and we're really turning to the Old Testament to read a prophet that was on the brass plates and was stripped from our Bible. There is no book of Zenos in our Old Testament. And he was incredible. Now, this whole allegory is the story of a tree that the Lord's trying to save, the tree of Israel. And the very, very end, the last verse of the allegory, where does the bad fruit go? Tell me where all the bad fruit that he could not change, he couldn't convert. Where does all the bad fruit go at the very end of the allegory? It's own. Sorry, I don't spell well when I get excited. It's own place. Now, go to the Book of Mormon and go to Jacob 6. Now, this one's really Book of Mormon. This is Jacob speaking of the allegory. So Jacob 6, verse 3. Of all the things that Jacob read in the allegory, what caught his attention? What seems to be the one thing that caught his attention? How tragic, how tragic to be sent to their own place. That caught his attention. Let's go to the Doctrine and Covenants. Let's go to section 88. Let's start in verse 32. Go to 29, start in 29, 88, 29. Who gets resurrected in verse 29? Section 88, verse 29 is the resurrection of or the justification of celestial. So we've resurrected all the celestial. Okay, verse 30, who gets resurrected? Terrestrial. Verse 31, who gets resurrected? So we've resurrected all the celestial, all the terrestrial, all the telestial. Who would be left in the spirit world? The few sons of perdition who got a body, right? 
Are there some people who got a body who will be sons of perdition? Evidently so. Will they be resurrected? Yes, if they got a body, they will be resurrected. Now, we're not talking about Satan and the third. They didn't come to earth. They didn't get a body. But if you got a body, will you be resurrected? Even if you're a son of perdition? Yes. So now verse 32, they will be resurrected and they will go where? To their own place. Why? Why will they go to their own place? I need someone to read the rest of verse 32. Why will the sons of perdition go to their own place? Anyone want to read for me? Please, the rest of 32, and then I'm going to have you read 33. Now, what is it that they didn't receive? What did they reject? What could they have received, but they didn't? Verse 33. Sorry, could you say that again? I'm sorry. <laughs> For what does it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he receives not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver. What will the sons of perdition never receive? What's the gift? The atonement. Jesus. They will never receive Jesus. Therefore, they will go where? To their own place. Do you see why that's poetic justice? How did they want to live? Their way. And so what's their end result? Their own place. Let's do one more. We got to do Satan and the third. Okay. So same section 88, but go to verse 114. Section 88, verse 114, where will Satan and the third that followed him in premortal life spend eternity? In their own place. Because how did they want to live? So Heavenly Father says in the end, Heavenly Father walks them to the edge of his property and says, go, make a life. Go build whatever you want to build. Go build your own kingdom because that's how you wanted to live. You want to live your way? Go build your kingdom. Harsh, isn't it? You want to live your way? You get whatever reward. Now, what kind of kingdom are they going to be able to build for themselves? Nothing. Now, what's the opposite? Go to John chapter 14, Last Supper, Jesus says in verse 2, go to verse 2, John 14, 2, he announces what? In my Father's house there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place. Where? Where? What place? What place has Jesus gone to prepare? One of God's places. Now, how do you get to one of God's places? Verse 6. How do you get to God's place? Jesus is the way. Now, do you see the choice of life? You live God's way and you get His place. You live your way and you get your own place. Do you see the difference between kingdoms of glory and everything else even the telestial people what is it that the terrest what is it that the sons of perdition will not receive the atonement even the terrestrial people at some you don't go to the terrestrial kingdom for having done something bad it is not a place of punishment one of my biggest pet peeves you don't go to the telestial kingdom because you did something bad. No one gets a kingdom of glory because you did something bad. You go to the telestial kingdom because you did something very, very good. And what was the very, very good thing you did that got you a kingdom of glory? You received him. Now, what if you receive all of him? Then you get all of his place the degree to which you receive and live god's way is the kingdom in which you live but if you will not receive god's way what will your end result be whatever place you can make for yourself so allow me 
to now bring that back to our conversation. If you want a place in God's kingdom, whose truth are you searching for? His truth. You must find His truth. Now you live in a world where everyone is arguing about what is true and what is not. The second foundation of the restoration is to commit to come to know truth. What does God say is true? Do you see the quest? Now, one of the tools to do so is the second thing coming forth in the Restoration. That's the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is a tool to do so. But let me just point out a warning in the book. Turn with me to 3 Nephi 11. When Jesus appears, he appears in the flesh in 3 Nephi chapter 11. And what does he say? He gives them a warning. I want to pull this one up. 3 Nephi 11, verse 39 and 40. Here's the warning, and I echo it today in this class on the foundations of the restoration. I echo this same warning. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this, this, and I'm going to draw it, this, This is my doctrine. And whoso buildeth upon this, buildeth upon my rock. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. And whosoever shall declare what? What's the warning? Anyone who declares more or less. Anyone who declares more and pushes it beyond that, if you get out here, if you get out here, anyone who declares more or less than this and establishes it as my doctrine is of evil. Now tell me what is happening right now in 2023. That's the battle you face in your world. And every one of us loves someone who got outside of the line, made more of the doctrine than he had established, and it led them astray. Every one of us loves someone who kind of made less of the truth. They made less of it. Things weren't as important as he declared that they were, and they went astray. Do you see the problem in our day? The first circle is you come to know God. The second circle is you know what's in that square. You know. Those of you who've been to the temple have made a covenant to obey the law of the gospel. I believe part of the law of the gospel is a commitment to know what is in that square and what is not. I will not make more or less. I will stay in the square. What is true? Can I give you an example? We're going to do this in a week or so. Let me give you an example. Some people push prophets way out here and think that prophets are what? Perfect. That they never make mistakes. They're angels. And everything they say is perfect. Everything they do is perfect. They push prophets way beyond the line. And they hold them up as if they're perfect. Well, guess what? They're not. And when they find out they're not, what usually happens? They go all the way to the other side and they throw everything away. Well, fine. Then everything's false. No one's inspired. And they come all the way over here. What's in the box? Tell me the doctrine about prophets that is in the box. 
Anyone want to try? Give me the doctrine that's in the box. Please. Called of God. Keys, authorities. Do they have something special that ordinary people don't have? Yeah. Are they perfect? Are they going to make mistakes? Yes. And when they do make a mistake, is it proof that everything is false? But do you see how many people are outside that box today? Boy, if a prophet tells you to get a vaccine, people fly off the handles. And some people leave the church because how dare a prophet tell me to get a vaccine? So what's true? What is true about prophets? What is true? You see how we do that? How we push it too far? How about the word of wisdom? Are there people who make more out of it than they should? Take it way too far? Are there people who take, make it too far less than it should be? And Jesus is saying, uh-uh, if you make more or less and establish this doctrine, that cometh of evil. Now watch him do it again. That was 11, right? Go to 18, 3 Nephi 18. We're seven chapters later, and he's repeating the same thing. He's just instituted the sacrament. He's talked about the sacrament, and then he says in verse 12, 3 Nephi 18, 12. And if ye shall always do these things, if ye shall always do these things, there's the box. He declared the box. If you do these things, blessed are ye, for ye are built upon my rock. But whosoever among you shall do more or less, you are not built upon my rock. Don't push it too far. And don't not go far enough. Everything we're going to do for the rest of the semester is going to try and put truth. We're going to try and list what's true. What's his declared truth? Because I want to go to his place. Therefore, I'm going to let him tell me what is true. And I'm going to be careful not to make more out of it or less out of it. I'm going to find the box. Do you see the quest? Do you see foundation number two of the restoration? Now, no way we can do it tonight, right? It's going to take a lifetime for you to find out what's in the box and what's not. That's one of the reasons we take classes. But there's no way we're going to do it all tonight. But I would invite you as obsession number two. Number one is know him. Know them. Connect with them. Obsession number two is what? Know what's true. Know what's true. Now, the Book of Mormon has a great example of antichrists. And what do antichrists always do? They twist the truth ever so slightly. So let's use them as an example, okay? Let's use the four antichrists in the Book of Mormon. Book of Mormon has four antichrists, and we're going to take a look at all four of them, and we're going to see, okay, what's the truth that they twisted? And you see if you can find a pattern for our days. All right, can you name the antichrist in the Book of Mormon? Okay, core horse number three. Ezraim is not because we don't necessarily... He doesn't really destroy faith. He just questions Alma. Oh, that's close. We can kind of, Zeezrom's up there. And if we had the teachings of Alma the Younger when he was an apostate, he'd probably be up there too. But there are four that are clearly teaching antichrist doctrines. Sherem is our first one. If you want to find them, this is Jacob 7. Nehor... So remember the whole destroyed city of Ammoniah, where Alma and Amulek preached? They were of what order? 
the whole city of Ammoniah was of the, the order of Nehor. So Nehor was one, Korahor, and then Zoram. Not the one that left with Nephi, but the one where they're up on the Ramiumptum. So those are the four antichrists in the Book of Mormon. So let's take a look at each one and watch them take a truth and twist it. All right, Sherem, go to Jacob chapter 7. Sherem was a very religious man. These antichrists are not all um, non-religious. Sherem was a very religious man. In fact, what's his twist? Jacob chapter 7. Sorry, let me get there. Let's see if we can find how he takes truth and he twists it. Notice verse 2. I want to point out the end of verse 2. What will all antichrists try and do? Overthrow the doctrine of Christ. How do you overthrow the doctrine of Christ? You don't need to make it go away. How do you overthrow the doctrine of Christ? You push it too far or not enough. So what's his twist here? Look at verse 5. Oh, sorry. Verse 7. What's his twist here? Jesus doesn't save me. Obedience to the law of Moses will save me. Now, I hate to say it, but there's a lot of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who come awfully close to that doctrine that I have to be perfect in order to be saved, and the way to be perfect is to live perfectly. No, no, no. You need a Savior. You need a Redeemer. In other words, saving you need. But what's the twist? You can do it. Or something else will save you. So he takes truth and he pushes it too far. Now, do you see the tendency of Latter-day Saints to do the same thing? I can, I can minimize my need for Jesus by doing what? Being perfect. You, my sweet friend, are out of the box. And you are headed for destruction. Your overzealousness is too much. You cannot save yourself. You can't live good enough to qualify for exaltation. You need a redeemer. Do you see the box? Do you see the tendency to go further? Even among good people. Okay, let's do another one. Should we do Nehor? Uh, Alma chapter 1 is Nehor. You thought this was a Doctrine and Covenants class, didn't you? <laughs> it will be, I promise. No, I don't. I don't apologize. I don't apologize for using the Book of Mormon to teach the restoration. I, do not, I take that back. I don't apologize. Okay, Alma chapter 1, verse 4. What was Nehor's doctrine? What did he take too far? Everyone is going to be saved. Now, is that true? In a sense, it's true, right? How is it true? Everyone's going to be resurrected, saved from death. And practically everyone is going to go to a kingdom of glory. So is it true that everyone's going to be saved? Yeah, but what's he doing? Tell me what he's doing. When I say that, when I read Alma Nehor's doctrine that all mankind should be saved and that we're all redeemed and in the end everyone's going to have eternal life, does that, make you, does that make you want to work harder? Oh, everyone's going to be saved, so I'm going to work harder. Does it make you want to work just as hard? Do you see the twist? If everyone's going to be saved, then why try? And he just did what? He made less. I don't have to work as hard because Jesus is going to save me. Do you see the opposite? Sherem was, you have to save yourself. And Nehor is, he'll just save me. 
It's Nephi's version of in the latter days, there would be those that say, eat, drink, and be married. Nevertheless, justify or fear God. He will justify in committing a sin. Yea, lie a little, dig a pit for thy neighbor. There's no harm in this because in the end, he will beat us with a few stripes and then we'll be saved in the celestial kingdom. I hate to say it, but how many pre-missionaries have the attitude, I can go ahead and sin because Jesus will just forgive me. I can repent. How many Latter-day Saints have the attitude that repentance is just freely given by Jesus and I can go sow my wild oats and break covenants and defy promises I've made and Jesus will just wipe it away. What are you doing to the gospel? You've made it less. Do you see the danger? One pushed it too far, one pushed it too low. And both were out of the box. And there's the danger. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, there's a lot of Christian faiths that teach something very similar, saying that, like, oh, as long as you accept Jesus into your heart and Jesus is your Savior, then you are saved. Now, is that true? 100% true. If you do that, you'll go to a kingdom of glory, but it won't be the celestial. Him and you'll take that further back into the box. And there's the correction. Then you can course correct, but you got it. If you truly take it to heart and act on it. But do you see the tendency to make less of it? But do you know people who make more? Do you know Latter day Saints who stress because they're not good enough? And I wonder if part of you are pushing that out of the box. I'm never going to make it. I'm not good enough. You're out of the box, my friend, and it's going to lead you astray. He is the reason I'm going to be saved. And I'm going to follow him wherever he goes. You see the difference? Let's do a worldly one. Let's do Korahor. Alma chapter 30 is Korahor. And those of you who go to college campuses may have to deal with this one quite a bit. We all do. Verse 17, Alma 30, verse 17. What is Korahor and so many worldly philosophies, twist of truth? Anyone studied Korahor? Anyone want to talk? What is his twist of truth? Verse 17, he says, Every man fares in his life according to the management of the creature. Therefore, every man prospers according to his genius, and every man conquers according to his strength, and whatever a man does is no crime. Now, there is somewhere that that is 100% true. There is somewhere where that is exactly what is 100% true. Where is that somewhere? Where is it true? The animal kingdom, (laughs) right? Let me read it again. Every man fares according to, in this life, according to the management of the creature. Every man prospers according to his genius. Every man conquers according to his strength. And whatever a man does is no crime. Where is that true? In the animal kingdom. If I'm a buck that has no does and over there is a buck with seven does, can I go kill that buck and take the does? Yeah. Do I go to deer prison? Do the does resent me? No. I'm just the new buck. That's how it is in the animal kingdom. If I impregnate as many people as possible and have my seed passed on, I'm a hero in the animal kingdom. Hitler would have been a hero in the animal kingdom. True or false? He got his seed to, he got his race as he thought to win. But in our world, he is a horrible villain because why? We are not animals. But the twist is what? That we are. 
There's a lot of people who believe we are evolved animals living the animal rules of survival. And whatever I do to survive is just fine. Do you see the twist? I'm going to pick on Caitlin for a second. Let's suppose you have a mentally retarded child. Your first baby is a mentally retarded child. Do you kill it? No. Do you kill your baby? No. You keep it? You raise it? What if it prevents you from having other more normal children? Would you still keep it? Yeah. Either this is the dumbest animal on this planet or what? She's not an animal. What would an animal do? What would an animal do to the weak, the decrepit, the broken? Even a mother, what would the animal do? I'm out of here. But we are not animals. We don't think like animals. We do not have animal instincts. Why do we put people in prison? We put the worst of our people where? And we feed them and we clothe them for the rest of their lives. Because why? We're not animals. That's true. We are not animals. We don't live that way. We don't live by those rules. We have a moral code. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Do you see the twist? It's a very, very powerful twist is we live by the rules of the animal kingdom. We don't. That is not God's truth. What does Alma do to combat Korahor? Do you remember what he does? Look at verse 44. What does he do to combat Korahor? He bears his testimony. Now, Alma's testimony has four components to it. Here's how I know there's a God. Here's how I know there's a God. Number one, what's his first evidence that there's a God? The testimony of all these thy brethren. How many people on this planet do believe in a higher power? They number in what? Billions. Where would billions of people get the idea that there is a supreme being? The very fact that billions of people worship a higher power is evidence that there is a higher power. Number two, eyewitnesses whose lives make their testimony very credible. Number three, how do you explain the scriptures if there's no God? Why would they be written? Who would have written them? Why do people read them? Why are you here studying them if there is no God? And number four, the order of the universe. What is natural for the world? If you don't put energy into a system, what happens? Chaos. Third, second law of thermodynamics is everything should be increasing in randomness unless there's a source of energy that orders it. And you look out and see the night sky, what do you see? Do you see chaos? You see order, which means there's a source of energy that's making all of this ordered. Do you know how absolutely brilliantly put together this planet is? There is one substance on this planet, one substance whose solid form weighs less than its liquid form. And if it weren't for that, there would be no life on this planet. Water. Can you name any other substance whose solid is more dense and lighter or less dense and lighter than its liquid form? Only one. If the earth were tilted even half a degree either direction, no life on this planet. If we were any further away from the sun or closer to it, no life on this planet. There is incredible order. There has to be a source of energy that orders it. Do you see what Alma had? He knew truth. He knew truth. Do you know truth? 
You want to take this? Should we do this one or skip it? You want to do Zoram? Okay, 31, Alma 31. You know the Zoramites, right? They're up on the Ramiumtum. What's their truth? What's their too much or too less? What's their twist on truth? God has favorites. Now, there's two sides to that, right? There's this side, God has favorites, and it'll never be me. Therefore, why try? And this one is, God has favorites, and it's me. I can do anything I want. And which one of those were the Zoramites? Do you see the twist? God has favorites. Does our Heavenly Father. Now tell me the truth in here. Does our Heavenly Father have favorites? Absolutely not. Do you see what the foundation is here? No truth. And I am not the source of truth. And you are not the source of truth. But there is a source of truth. Um, I'm going to try and make this play. I've had problems with this all day. But if not, I'll read it. Um, maybe I'll just read it. I'll just read it. You know what? I think I can find it in the Gospel Library app. I'm just drawing a blank on where I put it. Okay, I'll read it. Um, Elder Uchtdorf takes a poem, a very famous poem, and he uses that. I'm just going to read the poem. So let me read the poem. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happened to fall against his broad and sturdy, sturdy side, at once began to bawl, goodness me, but the elephant is very much like a wall. Does he have evidence that elephants are walls? Does he, is he 100% convinced that, el, based on his own evidence, that elephants are walls? Are elephants walls? Do you see the problem? The second feeling of the tusk cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp. To me, tis mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happened, happening to take the squirmy trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out to an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous, what most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he, tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, Even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. Now, do you think I'm going to be able to convince any one of them that they're wrong? Why not? They are relying on their limited experience to determine what is true. The only way they're going to know what an elephant is, is how. I've got to feel all of it. Find truth. 
It's still true whether everyone disbelieves it. It's still true. The number of people that believe it doesn't make it true or false. Find truth. Find the box. Don't let anyone twist it. Be willing to go beyond your own experiences. Don't make more of it or less of it. Find the box. Spend your life obsessing. I want to know what his truth is. I am going to spend my life in search of his truth so that I live it. I bear you my testimony that he has revealed his truths and to live his way will result in his place to be twisted to be fooled by an imitation and make less or more of his truth is going to lead you astray the greatest the second greatest thing that the restoration did is it brought about a restoration of truth Find it, know it, love it. Let me leave you with one last scripture. What will knowing truth make you? Turn to Jacob chapter four. What will knowing truth make you? Book of Mormon, Jacob chapter four, verse six. Find the word. We search the prophets and have many revelations and the spirit of prophecy and having all these witnesses, we obtain a hope and our faith becometh unshaken. May you have unshaken faith because you know what is true. Don't let anyone push it too far or convince. Don't let anyone sway you to push it too far or make less of it than it is, than it really is. What is his truth? I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.